and welcome back to Warsaw to Midnight, the podcast dedicated to taking a deep dive into directors' filmographies and paying penance for our cinematic sins. I'm Chris Gallagher, and I'm joined today by my co-hosts, Jacob Graves. Hey there. And Peterson Hill. Good evening. Guys, what are we bantering about today? Well, we've got a review of Wes Anderson's sophomore effort starring Bill Murray, Jason Schwartzman, and Olivia Williams, Rushmore. Plus, we've got the perfect beer to pair with Max Fisher's latest stage production. And of course, we'll wrap up the show as we always do with some really rad recommendations. But first... Hey guys. Hey, hey Chris. Chris. As we have been doing here on the Magnificent Anderson series, I want to touch base with you guys before we dive into the review, kind of where you stand with this film. Is this one that you guys had seen prior to this or is this the first time for anyone? No, I, I had seen this one, I think a couple of times. I watched it years after it came out. I probably saw it for the first time about 10 years ago. And then uh, during one of the Barnes & Noble uh, criterion sales. I went and picked this one up at half off and, uh, and watched it again, probably about a year ago. And I, w- I was pretty eager to review it cause it had it grown on me a lot since the first time I had seen it. What about you, Peterson? Yeah. So I saw this in theaters. Um, my stepmom took I have a friend of mine and she went with us. Somehow we convinced her to go see Rushmore, which I don't know she probably was like, hey, this got really good reviews. Do you want to see it? Cause she knew I was interested in good movies. And it's a movie that when I saw it at, what was it, 99? I'd have been 12 when it came out because it came out in the spring. I was like, what the hell is this? I've seen it time and time again after and kind of grown in fondness for it since then. But it's a weird movie to have seen when you're 12 because there's, you know, there's hand job talks and it's like, well, what, what exactly is a hand job? <laughs> so it's, it's kind of a weird movie to have seen because. It exists in that bubble of high school, which being somebody who's in middle school or kind of the end of lower school or whatever you want to call it, it is a little bit strange to see this movie because it's a world that isn't quite something you're familiar with, but it's not like it's this complete foreign universe. Yeah. It's just weird enough that you're like, I don't quite have my bearings here. Yeah, I first saw it in high school and I like part of my and I'll be honest, like at the time, it, it didn't quite hit everything for me. But then like uh, there were those things of just I loved the sort of slightly a couple degrees off uh, way that he he built everything. And we're we're, you know, not in the full blown Wes Anderson, perfect composition of everything yet. But uh, the, we're close, though. We're, we're getting close. We're getting real close. Uh, but there was, there was that thing about like, oh, I kind of wish, I kind of wish my school was more like Rushmore or Grover Cleveland even. You know, there was, there was something that felt not quite like the movie version of high school, but not quite like reality either. Chris, this is one of your, your favorite Wes Anderson movies as far as I can tell, right? It's really hard for me to rank them against each other. Uh, it's pretty much. none of them are any good? Because none, so none of them just are just go away. <laughs> um, I mean, my my go to favorite has always been the Royal Tenenbaums first film I saw, and actually that one took me a little while to to really appreciate as well. But um, I'd say that and Grand Budapest are at the very tippy top, and then this is in there with 
everything else just below that. This until Isle of Dogs. I've seen everything in the theaters except for Isle of Dogs. Really? Yeah, I saw every single Wes Anderson in the theaters besides Isle of Dogs and Bottle Rocket. That's it. Hmm. I actually have seen this in a theater. I didn't see it when it came out, but I, I did get the chance to see it in a like it was like a not a true fan i guess midnight movie no not at all i had no idea what was going on at the at the time 1998 but it was it was fun to see on a big screen um and i will say revisiting it for this again um there was enough sort of theatrically to the the way it was all put together that um even as many times as, as i've seen this that uh got me excited once again let's go ahead and dive into our review of this what do you guys say let's, let's do, do it, it. max oh hey mr bloom you said you wanted to meet what well, when right now you said you wanted to put an end to all this oh yeah i uh was gonna try and have that tree over there fall on you that big one? Yep. It would have flattened me like a pancake. What stopped you? Mm. What's the point? She loves you. She's my Rushmore, Max. Yeah, I know. She was mine, too. I am waiting. I am waiting. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. I am waiting. I am waiting. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. All right, guys. So we are at Rushmore. Wes Anderson's second film comes out in 1998, budget of $10 million. And he's once again working with Owen Wilson as a co-writer, not acting in this film unless you consider his technical role as a dead guy who we never see in the credits. Um, But this is a a bit of a change of pace from uh, Bottle Rocket, I would say this is sort of where Wes Anderson, I think, really begins to come into his own as the director we go on to know him as. I don't think he's quite entirely fully formed, but pretty close. Uh, the film in general, it's a story of this character, Max Fisher, who uh, is basically involved in every extracurricular activity possible at this elite private school, Rushmore. Uh, but really bad at his academics and um, he's sort of defined by his identity being connected with the school. And then he meets a industrious millionaire and uh, falls in love with a teacher and things go awry from there. It's sort of a, I don't know. How would you classify? How would you guys classify this movie? It's not quite a dark comedy. I was amazed by how few jokes are in this, in this movie and not to say they're not there, but they're, they're spaced out a lot more. Yeah, to me, this is a somber kind of character study that has a lot of very small jokes. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it never really surfaces as like a laugh out loud 
minute by minute comedy. It's not that, but when you cast Bill Murray in a certain role, and this was 98 before he became the Bill Murray we know now. This, which is, is, def- this is defining him as that. This is the morose Bill Murray that now goes on to make things like, um, you know, Broken Flowers and Lost in Translation. Exactly. This is the Bill Murray that would set the tone for the next, really, I guess, 20 years of his career. And I think it's an interesting performance, and I think it's interesting to see what this movie does with him. And now, you know, Bill Murray, he gets a call from Wes Anderson. He says, yep, I'm good to go. Let's let's do it on his on his 800 number because he doesn't yeah. have an agent, <laughs> um, which is insane. He didn't have an agent. So I love the Bill Murray. Basically, he listens to your pitch. And if he likes it, he likes it. And if not, well, you don't like it. Um, but so, yeah, I think this is kind of a somber, morose comedy that has a lot of punchiness to it. But. There's a lot of angst and a lot of anger and a lot of um, death. Yeah, death is a huge theme in this movie. It's it is a heavy, heavy comedy in a lot of ways. It's almost more of like a coming of age movie in a way, but it's a it's an exploration of teen angst. It's it's a it's a really complex character study and not like a typical kind of character that we see. It's it's hard to classify. Which uh, I'm I'm sure made it hard to sell to get people to come in and see it. You had to kind of pick one of those routes, and and I know we all watched the trailer. Uh, it looked like they picked kind of the zany comedy love triangle route to advertise this with, which is an interesting choice, but not really what the bucket I would put this in. I would have been so upset if I would have seen that trailer and then shown up not knowing who Wes Anderson was, as I'm sure most of the audience didn't. One of the things that I I found interesting coming in this time was, and I guess maybe it's because it's been a few years since I'd seen it, um, at least start to finish. And this time I was amazed at how much like it sort of could play like a horror movie if characters reacted to Max differently. There's, I mean, from the very beginning, we are put into this very obvious subjective perspective of Max that is detached from reality with the, uh, with the geometry sequence. We never see that classroom again. We never see any of that, that set up like, and, and that kind of between that Mark Mothersbaugh music and the, sort of way that that room is set up with like, there's these pictures framed over Jason Schwartzman, Max Fisher's shoulder in the classroom. It looked like, it looks like he has almost decorated his seat himself. He's got a little cup of tea. I'd assume that's espresso if I knew Max. No, I was thinking tea, but yeah. Were you? Okay. I was thinking espresso. Look at an espresso cup. The punch of I'm Wes Anderson. This is what I I do from the the first frame. Amazing. But then you realize that this is the subjective world of Max. Like that classroom may not even look like that. He obviously isn't going to have his espresso or tea. And then we have these moments throughout where he like when he comes out after Serpico, you know, there's the whole crowd is sort of applauding like you have a smattering in a, you know, in a gymnasium. And then we get that, uh, classic Wes Anderson switch from regular motion into slow-mo 
and suddenly it's an uproarious crowd and we're now viewing it from his head Well, the next movie opens is with this fantasy sequence. Then it closes yeah. on uh, the ooh-la-la where he stands with Mrs. Cross. And with that, the movie moves from diegetic sound to non-diegetic sound in that mm-hmm. moment. And then moves to slow-mo. And then the curtains close. And the movie bookends with these two fantasy sequences. At the beginning, he's fantasizing about being the smartest kid in the room and everyone adoring him for that reason. And then the end... He's fantasizing doing something right that everyone loves. And then also he has essentially the adoration of not just his uh, peers, but also those who love him too. Like his uh, father. I wrote a hit play. He wrote a hit play. What did you ever do? Well, and he also, I mean, that, that final sequence, he's even, you know, laid out the soundtrack for his, the end of his fantasy, you know, a little happy ending by queuing up with the DJ. Okay. You're going to play faces. Ooh, la la right here. And everything's going to go smoothly fade out. Perfect. The moment I love is when he's talking to Mrs. Cross and she says, he says, no one got hurt. And she says, well, you did. And he says, well, not that bad, which is a double entendre, double yeah. entendre for the entire movie. Yep. Uh, but hold on. We kind of skipped our initial reactions here. Oh, yeah. We, we did. completely skipped on to the movie. We talked about our first seeing, but what, you know, what do you guys actually think of this thing? I will say that this movie has improved every time I watched it. And this was, this was no exception. Uh, it is a movie that I appreciate even more now that I am older. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the first time I saw it, like I said, probably 10, maybe a little more. Years ago, I did not understand the Max character nearly as well as I do now. And I I love how complex and layered that that character is. I love how unique that character is. I love how wrong he is about so very many things. And he does so with such confidence uh, that just just getting to see Max Fisher... um, through the eyes of, of, or just an older pair of eyes, if you want to say it that way, um, just improved this movie so much for me. I, I, I very much enjoyed it and, and look forward to revisiting it again. So it, it definitely grew on me from my last time. I'm in sort of the same boat as Jake, even though I've seen this probably infinitely more times than he has. Every time I, I watch a Anderson film, like I continue to grow in appreciation or, or, latch on to something different this time around in addition to the sort of picking up on the almost horror elements which uh come to find out rosemary's baby was a huge influence on anderson in general early on and he's described that film as being sort of a you know it's played straight but a little creepy and i think he is adding those elements in here um the other thing that i found though is i had never really related to herman bloom before in the way that I did this time around. And I think that's partially something that comes with age. Also maybe partially something that comes with, um, being a father and not to say, you know, he's, he's a pretty shitty father and a pretty shitty husband, but he can't that's, even tell his kids apart. 
(laughs) (laughs) And I guess that's the way that I had always sort of framed him up until now. This time around, I did actually was able to kind of get deeper into understanding like he's not just a buffoon. Um, You know, like the the kinks song that's playing at the the birthday party where he's watching his wife blatantly feed cake to, to another man. Like he actually is, you know, in pain and he's a human, even though, even though he's a flawed human, like he has he's in these, an existential crisis. Yeah. And, and quick aside on that little sequence, Chris, that that's one of the most compact little bits of information being disseminated. The shot back to the painting of him and his family yeah. to her love, love how, the the economy at which it tells that entire story about him and his wife. There's two there's two separations in that painting. One, he's he has gray hair, everyone else has red. And then two, he's slightly off to the side and in front of them. And sitting he's, down. And he's sitting down. He doesn't look like he fits in the painting at all. Yeah. Like the three of them are framed together and then he is off. He may even be looking the other direction. He's he's got that cigarette hanging out of his mouth. You're you're right, Jake, like a remarkable piece of like, okay, here's how we tell the information. And that's the type of joke that I actually love about Wes Anderson. And it's played for more a somber, like it's a bit of a joke, mm-hmm. the you know, having the painting. But, you know, he loves he loves to play these things where like you have a very intricate thing made for just an insert shot that tells mm-hmm. you tons of information. Um, yeah. But but then also in that same scene, you see a little more of like, I think here you can see his influences on his sleeve a little more than you can in later films, um, because it's very clearly he's uh, well, he and Owen are making a reference to the graduate with with the pool and just sort of sitting down there alone at the bottom of the pool. I think that's the type of thing that. You probably wouldn't have you probably wouldn't get from him later on. Like he if he was writing this film as his, you know, fourth or fifth feature, we might not have gotten something that on the nose as far as a like, oh, hey, remember this thing. But overall, just to to cycle back, improved this time you watched it. Yeah, always. I mean, always. I'll, okay, let, Peterson. I'll let you know if I'm disappointed. <laughs> Peterson. Well, Jake. <sighs> Worst movie in 98. No, I'm kidding. I absolutely love this movie. Hold on just a second. For the record, we've been talking now for, I don't know, probably over an hour. And Peterson has just been grinding this into Jake, (laughs) like setting up how much he hated this film. And and so I've been waiting for this this payoff. Yeah. So I'll be honest. I absolutely love this movie. And it's a movie. So this time, and I've seen it four to five, maybe six times. And every time I watch it, I enjoy it. And I think this time as I was watching it, it had been five or six years. I was watching it and I was wondering, I like this movie, but why do I love it? And the whole thing is going. The kite flying scene happens and the movie has a pivot. It becomes a movie not about just this selfish young boy which it is still that, but it's about him learning to become the artist he is kind of born to be Mm -hmm. and how to share his experiences and his life and his, really his talent with other people. Um, And it slowly morphs into this really, really moving 
story of coming of age for him and for Herman Bloom. And I think it moves from that scene for the kite flying scene where he uh, tells Dirk to take dictation. And there's a kid named, I think, Shushine Davis, which I want yep. to know, know <laughs> Shushine Davis's backstory, <laughs> first of all. And then two, when it moves to the next scene, which I think it moves immediately to him meeting Herman Bloom at the barbershop. Mm-hmm. And it is this very sad, very, very vulnerable moment for him. For for Bloom or for Max? I think for both of them. But Max has come to the point where he's ready to talk about his vulnerabilities. And Bloom's not quite there. And he gives him the option of which, which pen do you want? Do you want the punctuality or do you want the perfect attendance? Uh, and they move inside. And that's where he introduces him to his father for the first time. And that's the moment where it really solidifies for me to being a good movie, to being a great movie. Because I think when Herman Bloom tells his father really nothing, and he alludes nothing to the fact that his son has been lying the entire time about having this brain surgeon Everything is on Bill Murray's face about Mm -hmm. what that moment means to him. And he understands for the first time, oh, Max, he's like, I have been treating him like an adult. He's a child. Yeah. He is a child. And he completely understands. And it is this really beautiful moment that I think solidifies the movie from being a good little comedy and farce to being something much deeper, much grander, much more uh, grand. Well, and I, I think that structure is, is laid out, you know, where we are working towards that, that moment. And he kind of breaks it up into these acts of, um, of the, the months. I mean, we start with September and then he gets expelled from school and we go to October and then he's in at Grover Cleveland. And then I think it's November when that all kind of plays out. You know, he's he's had a little bit of uh, as he kind of gets knocked off his horse and realizes that he's lost Rushmore. He has a little bit of trying to, you know, you've got that that montage sequence of him. I need a tutor. And, you know, it's sort of the three of them hanging out for a while before the uh, um uh, they they went skinny dipping in the pool, giving each other hand jobs um, <laughs> before all of all of that plays out. But, you know, they're they're very intentionally structuring it in a way that like on paper, it follows a bit of a formula that that you would get from traditional screenwriting. But it just they play it out in such a way that it feels so much more organic, even as it's living in this. Wes Anderson world that is slightly a few degrees off from reality. And that's the, one of the complaints I hear about Wes Anderson sometimes, like none of the characters feel real they're paper thin. They, and and I've never thought the world might not feel real or might feel different to me, but these characters feel so real and just the way they, they downplay everything that they say as a pair as, as compared to like, other, uh, you know, directors or styles of acting or whatever. Like these characters feel very real to me, even in a surreal world. It's like that, you know, the scene where he meets, uh, Bloom's wife on the, uh, at the top of the parking garage Mm -hmm. and we don't even hear the conversation. Peanut butter or tuna salad? (laughs) Tuna salad. I'll 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 take the tuna fish. (laughs) 
Yeah. And, and then he's explaining to her and we don't hear anything that he says. And then we just see her hand the sandwich back to him. And that's well, all the information that we need. That's the, and what I love. And we'll, I'm sure we'll have plenty of talk about this, but that's such a North by Northwest reference. And you get to the point where, yes, everyone says Wes Anderson is kind of playing on all these different mentors of his and different people that he's fallen in love with. And that's such a North by Northwest reference, mm-hmm. not in a not in a derivative way, though. Yeah. Because we know everything that needs to be said there. Yeah. Like, it's not about what he's saying. It's about the fact that he's saying it. Like, he's he is betraying something to the Herman Bloom character in that moment. I mean, I think that's the way that he uses references a lot throughout. I mean, especially as he sort of matures and grows in his... Um, confidence and abilities as a, as a director. Um, but he's, there's, there's a little moment uh, towards the end of the film where you have um, Bloom and Mrs. Cross at intermission kind of out talking to each other on the, um, uh, Just play, yeah. like on a veranda. And it's a direct reference to Barry Lyndon, but it's not doing, you know, the scene in Barry Lyndon is this, big, um, huge Kubrickian moment here. It's this tiny little, like he understands that, okay, we have these two characters who need to be intimately connected in a, in a delicate way too. Like that's, that's the thing with the characters in this movie. They are, um, they are so fleshed out and so human um, in a really, really nice way, but he he brings them together in this quiet little moment, and he's borrowing from from this big bombastic sort of film, and and creating a scene that like if you don't need to know that he's he's making a reference, you don't need to like he understands the effect of it and how it works, and inserts it to make it um, to make it his own. Do you think the characters at the beginning are purposely drawn a little bit vague? And then as you get deeper in the movie, as you get farther into it, they get matched with more specificity. I think that as you get farther into the movie, really when you hit the halfway mark, these characters start to get some bit of a really, really toned in and really fully fleshed out characterization. I think initially we, our understanding of Max is in a lot of ways how he wants to frame himself in the world. You know, we're introduced to him as uh, this kind of overzealous guy who's in a thousand clubs and he's really defined by um, his involvement with everything at, at Rushmore. And then we find out, okay, well, his... He's lying about his dad, claiming he's a brain surgeon. He's, you know, we we kind of learn his vulnerabilities along the way in the same way that someone who actually got to know him would. Yeah, and I also love the structure of it in that he defines himself by Rushmore at the beginning. And as he loses Rushmore is when he starts to, you know, figure out who he is. But he doesn't, I think, really know who he is at the beginning of the movie. No. So it wouldn't make sense for us to have like a true and honest moment then we're seeing we're seeing the act we're seeing his what the character he's playing one of the tra- trajectories i love about this movie is you're watching that first moment where 
Max Fisher sees Herman Bloom and he's in the school auditorium or the school chapel. I'm not sure exactly what it is. I guess it's chapel. It looks more like chapel. Um, and Herman's giving this very like, like basically screw the rich kind of talk and Max latches onto it and he's like, oh yeah, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And the whole time you're thinking, why is Max, like, why is he so drawn to this? Mm-hmm. Because supposedly he has the brain surgeon father, right? That That's the whole gimmick he's built for himself. And then you find out that that facade slowly drips away. Yeah. So he gets attached to Herman Bloom because of that, because pull yourself up, screw the rich kids. Like you've got to work harder essentially. And for Max, that's what he is. He's not a kid who is given a silver spoon. His dad's a barber. He's at Rushmore by uh, scholarship. He wrote a little one act about Watergate. Anyway, <laughs> one act about Watergate. And what I love is that the whole movie you're watching and you're seeing it. And then I think in that moment with Max's dad, where Herman basically doesn't reveal, oh, your son's been lying about you yeah. the whole time. He comes out and that is the moment where he says, oh, that's why he's drawn to me because mm-hmm. I am essentially him. I pull myself up by my bootstraps. I am a self-made man, essentially. But at the same time, Bill Murray, he realized he's got all the flaws and Max doesn't see the flaws. He sees the wealth. He sees the opportunity. He sees the money. He does not see the existential crisis this man's going through. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what I think I love so much about this movie is that it does. And I'll say like this movie in that final third kind of like moves me to tears in a way that kind of, I don't know if any other Anderson film does. Not I love from, grand grand Budapest has some pretty grand Budapest does it too. Yeah. That's the other one. What, what I love about the arc that Max goes through is that Anderson is able to show you, Max's growth from, you know, pretending to be rich to accepting uh, that his dad is a barber and all that and show that whole entire arc without ever having any of those really scripted uh, moments where it's like, I'm poor, okay? My dad's a barber. Like, there's none of that, like, big moment about it. But we still see all the growth that he goes through in this movie just purely from from really almost low-key reactions uh, between him and other characters, just the way that they're the things he's doing and the way he's doing them and the way he interacts with people shows all of this growth without ever, it's always showing and it's never telling. And for this to be a sophomore effort is just, it's amazing the amount of growth that Max can go through in this film. Well, but you've got, so you've got Bloom going through his sort of existential crisis, yeah. but then Max coupled with uh, Mrs. Cross they're going through trauma like Max is still because he's, you know, a kid and he hasn't come into adulthood yet and hasn't totally figured himself out. He's still actively recovering from the trauma of losing his mother when he was young. And then as he says to her, Oh, so we both got dead people in our lives. Um, you know, (laughs) in our families, in our families, we've got dead people in our families. And then, and then Miss Cross is, has a pretty fresh wound of her husband who it appears she had known, you know, since she was an early teenager at least. So that's a big 
big loss for her as well that we don't you know we're only given those like you're saying jake those little subtle um kind of allusions to what really you know fleshes out the these characters and i i really appreciate the way that they delicately kind of tie dovetail the the trauma that those two share i mean that's i think that really is even if it was a farce at first as far as him trying to just get to know her by any means necessary it becomes really something that they are both driven in the same way by the trajectory of that i mean that scene when he goes to see her when she's resigned need any help no i have it oh here let me see no please look i don't think you should come in here I'm sorry I hurt your feelings. I'm sorry I love your friend instead of you, but please, Max. You honestly believe you love Bloom instead of me? Yes. You'll have to forgive me if I don't take your word for that. Oh, stop. Miss Cross. Listen, if you don't stop, I'm going to lose it. I mean it. It's too late. It's too late. Oops. Wait, please. I got kicked out because of you. No, you got kicked out. Rushmore was my life. Now you are. No, I'm not. What do you really think is going to happen between us? Do you think we're going to have sex? That's a kind of cheap way to put it. Not if you've ever fucked before, it isn't. Oh, my God. How would you describe it to your friends? Would you say that you'd fingered me? Or maybe I could give you a hand job. Would that put an end to all of this? Please get out of my classroom. That is like, you know, we don't we don't get a lot of release from her, but that moment kind of it gives us so much information about where she is like her headspace at the time. It also tells us that she's not just the object of affection in this love triangle. She like, you know, all these characters, she's fully fleshed out in a way that I really appreciate. And that she has her own, you know, her arc maybe isn't quite as defined as the other two, but it's still clear that she is, She's an active recovery there. I, I've watched seasons of TV shows with and and walked away knowing less about the characters than I do about Max and Herman and Rosemary. They're layered, they're complex, they're well defined without being just like a caricature or anything like that. It, it, this movie does real work. It it really does. What I love most about this character is that yes, she is an active recovery of losing her husband. And because of that, Wes Anderson paints her with such vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And because of that, that is why I think she's drawn to Max in a way. And yes, her and Max are age inappropriate and there's a million things that are inappropriate about their relationship. And I love though that she does like she has to put her foot down with Max in ways that he doesn't like, but, he, you know, she establishes these boundaries 
And I think Olivia Williams is so good. Like she's mm-hmm. so good as Rosemary Cross. Um, and then touching on the loss of Max. So, you know, I'll say, um, for me in high school, I was a kid who was relatively similar to Max. I was horrible in class. I made terrible grades. I was captain of the basketball team. I was president of a couple of clubs. Like I was in a lot of like clubs. I won like a superlative for the yearbook, but I was about as bad of a student as you could be and still graduate. Um, and then I'll say too, like I lost my mom probably roughly the same time that Max did. So this movie for me has that kind of added resonance where, you know, I like connect to it on that level as well. And it feels in a lot of ways, you can tell like Max is this lost kid. He is looking for this connection in a way that he hasn't had, you know, his, it does seem like he's got a very good father. Like his dad seems like a really good dad in a lot of ways, but he is missing that maternal figure and he's longing for it and he's looking for it anywhere he can get it. Whether that is a teacher that he wants to date or it is someone that he, you know, like Margaret Yang, he denies her, denies her, denies her till he finds out she's imperfect. Once she's Mm -hmm. imperfect, he's okay to be imperfect with her. Yeah. Like this, like that's, I think the depth this movie's working on is that it's not just about saying, well, Max is this kind of a three dimensional character. It's everyone, every single character in this thing is built to be dimensional in a way that is very, very emotional. I think there's also a lot of truth in the way that he's presenting youth in, I mean, like so many movies, we get this rebellious or lost teen character who, you know, it's, oh, he gets in with the wrong crowd and does drugs and alcohol. And that's, that is a, you know, and I mean, there's plenty of good movies that do that mid nineties last year. Um, falls into that. And I, I really like the way that, uh, that movie handles that thing, but I love seeing a, a character that, because he, for me, not so much in direct personal ways, but just in sort of emotional ways and in the way that he handles things. I, I found Max also very identifiable, um, when I was young in, you know, you know, the way that my outlet wasn't like, oh, well, I'm, you know, I feel lost. So I'm going to go, you know, drink a case of Natty Light with my friends or whatever. It was more like I'm going to just invest myself in this weird outlet of creativity and just focus on that instead of taking care of, you know, myself or my grades or whatever it was. Um, so I, I appreciate, I think some of the truth that comes out in this film is from the fact that he's really zeroing in on something that we, that is as true as what we see again and again and again on screen, but we, we hardly ever see it portrayed this way. And, and so it feels fresh and real and pretty incredible. I I've felt like the closest comparison for Max, and this has me uh, uh, walking into saying some dumb stuff, but the closest literary comparison to the Max character to me is, is the character of Hamlet. They're both conflicted uh, young men who are uh, dealing with some loss. 
They are, are they have a, a high amount of agency. They're making their own choices. They're going about doing their own thing. They're this out of control character that nobody else in in the in the world can control. They're doing these things. They're stirring the pot, and they're they're full of this this unkempt teen rage, I guess. But but in Max, it's not a an outright rage, but he's still. He is just constantly trying to make things work. He is constantly pulling strings and levers to try and get the thing that he wants. And and I've been thinking about this since I watched it. I, I, I can't stop thinking about how how this mirrors Hamlet in, in a couple of ways for me. But now you guys can make fun of me for that one. Probably will. Quote this one back to me when I say I don't like a P.T. Anderson movie. Remember that time you said uh, Max Fisher was Hamlet? I actually, I I kind of zoned out a little bit just thinking like, what is he going to try to compare Magnolia to if he thinks this is Hamlet? <laughs> I mean, the Bible? I'm not saying it's Hamlet level literary work. I'm just saying that is the closest character to Max Fisher that I, that I can, that's the only other uh, character that captures that same aspect of youth that I think I don't Max I don't captures. think he's as emo though as as Hamlet you know he doesn't like that's that's one of the other things that's refreshing is it's not like you know we will get we will get the straight up depression from Richie come uh Royal mm-hmm. Tenenbaums but he's in a different place where it's more just like Sol- it's this Charlie Brown sadness. To me, when he's cutting brake lines on cars and ruining people's lives, he is at that same level of uh, a-, a grief spiral, essentially, in a way. No, there is like there is an absolute anger to, uh, to Max that I don't know if he really knows how to funnel it. And he has these really destructive tendencies. Like, he cuts the brake lines... One, and then two, he says, oh, well, hey, I'm going to cut this tree down and I'm going to have it fall on Herman Bloom. He didn't do it. It never really happens. He fucking cut the tree, though. But he cut the tree and also he cut the brake lines. Like, he could have killed Herman Bloom twice in the movie. And And Mr. Little Jeans. And Mr. Little Jeans. So, there's three times you got to kill people at least in this movie. That's not... That that is not including the play productions he puts on because there's <laughs> the definitely some the deaths that could happen. The in play those. is the thing, but so he certainly could inadvertently and like kill somebody, and I think he would be like, "Oh my god, what did I do?" I don't think he wants to. No. I think it's the temptation of, well, this makes me feel alive. This makes me feel like I am living my life but also taking control of the thing that has crippled him or has you know rendered him sort of in this state of not knowing how to define himself well it is very important that one of the times he tries to kill somebody it is herman bloom at his mother's grave right Mm -hmm. he's sitting there he's incredibly sad he says well i was going to cut down that tree and herman bloom says that big one well, to pancake me like a whatever. It would have squashed me like a pancake. It would have yeah. squashed me like a pancake, yeah. And he immediately just walks away and he's so – like it, 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 it eats at him in a way that I don't think any other character written by a lot of screenwriters would have had it. Now, I also think knowing what we do about like where Owen Wilson goes – 
like in his personal yeah. life. You know, unfortunately, like we know a lot more about these guys as they move forward in their life. And, you know, Owen Wilson, he obviously has his own demons. And I think this movie targets some of those demons and really tries to expel some of them and really talk about them. Um, so that's why I think this is, yes, it is funny and it is really a comedy at heart. It's morose, though. It is a very somber and very sad comedy. How have we gone this long without mentioning Harold and Maude? Oh, man. Max Fisher and 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 Harold uh, are are very much akin in the same in the same type of characters. That's one of these references that shines clearly through this film. Can I just push back into that for a second? Because I, I think that Harold in that movie is born of privilege. And I think Max isn't. Max is... And this is what I think – maybe this is the character that I think Wes Anderson writes so well is that Max wants to be that character. He wants to have the money. He wants to be the character that has the privilege and the uh, kind of the eye of everyone. But he doesn't have it. And that's the thing is that he's trying to build to it. He's trying to command it. I don't know if it's so much that he wants to be it as it is that he – He's clearly a talented kid who just hasn't, like, because he's a teenage kid, hasn't fully grown into the person that he will be. Like, he has ambition, but it's not, it never seems to be envious to me. Uh, I, I'm, I'm on the same page. The thing I think is is key to being different between Max and, and Harold is that Harold is struggling to... Um, escape his privilege he is struggling to gain agency and to be able to do his own thing where max is is struggling to uh gain and keep that that uh uh you know rushmore you could say privilege you could say wealth something like that but it seems like he just wants to be successful and he, he ultimately wants people to love him like that is what he is 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 looking for and that does not seem like what harold is looking for in that film yeah, I don't I don't think they are entire direct analogs to one another. Um I think there is, you know, a general sense of this morose throughout um mm-hmm. the films and then within those characters that that crosses over, but then you've also got, you know, it's it's more these these touches, you know, you've got younger guy, older woman. You've got um the obvious. I mean, I remember the first time that I saw Harold and Maude um, I had seen, you know, a lot of Wes Anderson by that point. And it was within the first 30 seconds. I was like, oh, oh, I need to reassess Wes Anderson completely because he's clearly ripping off this guy. And and I think Harold Mudd is played more for like funny, haha, dark jokes than Rushmore is. The darkness is right under the surface in Rushmore and it's way out in front in Harold and Maude. Yeah. See, I don't know. I, I think the darkness is right there in the front. Um, I think Anderson is really putting the trauma that a lot of these characters are going through front and center. And look, I mean, you know, Herman Bloom, when he's asked like, oh, sir, how long you'd be here? He says, well, I'm being sued for divorce. I don't know. Like, <laughs> very good, like, sir. Like, <laughs> and there's that. Yeah. I love that moment where the, the, uh, front, front desk is just like, very good, sir. And it's just Is this, there a pool I can hang out in after I eat dinner and drink at the bar? <laughs> um, <laughs> but all of these, like all three of these characters are suffering some 
from some kind of crisis. It's midlife for Herman. It's trauma for Max and for uh, Rosemary. And then when you turn around, it is these three people struggling. And I think that's, that's the thing that Anderson really connects to. And he really gets correct because when he gets to the end of the film, all three of these people, yeah, they're not in perfect places and they're still in pretty bad places, some of them in their life. But there is some kind of silver lining where you realize they're going to be maybe okay. Yes, there's no real resolution, but they're okay. Uh, Herman is in a better spot than when he started the movie. He is more understanding of other people because of his experience with Max. And then Max is very much – he is very much because he is the person that we connect with. He is the one that goes the most. And he now understands everyone in the movie. Uh, and I think even – and there's a reason Luke Wilson shows back up as the doctor is that he's – the doctor that he was making fun of and trying to assert his privilege over. The thing I love about that first scene when he meets Luke Wilson at the uh, restaurant, when he gets emotional, what's Jason Schwartzman do? He goes from his voice being a certain level to he lower, he heightens it. And it's this mm-hmm. high screechy tone and well, yes, he is drunk one because he had one whiskey and soda or whatever it was, <laughs> which is crazy. But I love he, I love Murray's reaction when she she calls him out on it too. He's kind of like, oh, "What's I gonna do? What's I gonna do?" Uh, but he but Max gets so upset and he raises his voice. But what happens? He screeches. It's this high pitched voice. And it highlights he's a child amongst these adults. And he's, yes, he is an adult and he has this comprehension of like adult behavior. But what happens when her, he asks Herman about Vietnam? He says, Were you in the shit? Yeah. I was who talks about the shit? Yeah. Like, who talks about, like, why would you possibly bring up, like, probably the most traumatic moment of this man's life? <laughs> Uh, it's but he kid. understands that as well, like as as you know, as the movie goes on, clear, maybe. yeah. No, I I like I understand what you're saying, but I think I I I don't think the darkness is front and center in that it's not a Darren Aronofsky film. It's not a bleak film. It's the tone is still, um, you know, it never in this in this movie does it feel like. All hope is lost. Um, so buoyant, whimsical, and fun. And, yeah, and it's yeah. not about the traumatic events; it's about people dealing with trauma. Yeah, if that and makes any sense. It's people getting over trauma. Yeah, yeah and there's, right. you know, I, I think there's also this direct line from a character like Max Fisher to a character like Susie Bishop, um, and you know, she's got the whole thing of uh, she has this this sort of pent up anger that she doesn't know what to do with. And she's, she finds the book of how to deal with a uncontrollable child or whatever. There's, you know, there's, there's a lot of lines I think that you can draw from, you know, you were talking about Owen Wilson and his, you know, mental health and, and those sorts of things that we've, we've come to learn about him um, since this, this film came out. 
Anderson has said, you know, Susie Bishop is basically him. I think there's a lot of there's a composite of those two in that character. And that that's also, I think, what makes him a pretty dynamic um, real life characters he he feels like he's drawing from you know two wells and it's just i don't know i i i see the darkness i just don't think it's the it's not the focus and i think that was um is that what you, what you were getting at jake like that's that's my like yep absolutely i i i feel like it never the movie never pulls you down well this is an after hours it's not the wrestler it's not any number this of those movies. After hours, like, <laughs> after no. hours, it plays. It plays all that bleakness pretty light, though. It plays it fun. Yeah, after hours is a dark comedy, right? Yeah, like yeah, it's a very dark comedy. I think there is some darkness in Rushmore, but it is very drawn to reality and earth and life. Well, it's almost drama. That's the levity of the comedy is the thing that keeps you able to move forward. It's it's less on the comedy. All right. We've talked about this movie for however long, and we've barely talked about the fact this movie is absolutely hysterical. Like, I – like, this is so funny to me. Like, there are moments when Herman Bloom is checking into the hotel. We've already t- touched on it. How long are you staying with us? Indefinitely. Indefinitely. <laughs> I'm being sued for divorce. <laughs> should, should we just go to funniest moment now? Yeah, let's let's do it. what you got one. Do you know what you want? <laughs> I, I I think so. I, I, and I and enlisting funniest moments. I think I'm learning what I really like in comedy uh, because I, I remember when when we did uh, when we did this last week. It was uh, John C. Riley dancing to uh, to to uh, Dirk Diggler's song. It was just mm-hmm. that image. This time it's an image as well. It's also some physical comedy, I guess, if you want to say that. But it's when Bill Murray gets in the elevator at the hospital, I think they're at. And oh, he's, yeah. he's smoking a cigarette and he puts a second <laughs> cigarette in his mouth. That that absolutely kills me. He also the, has a Diet Coke can in his pocket and he pours <laughs> a little pocket shot in it. Is that Diet Coke? Everything he's I doing there. It's like a beer. No, it's a Diet Coke can. He pulls it out. He pulls it out. You see that it's Diet Coke. Yeah. Yeah, but it's the lighting the second cigarette while the cigarette like nothing says more about his mental state. Is, than, than, is that the moment that uh, Max asks him how are you doing, and he goes, "I'm a bit, I'm a bit lonely these days." Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and there's there's an amazing, an amazing jump cut there that like I don't know if that scene was longer or if that was intended, but it, like it worked. It's so effective. Because yeah. of the fractured state that that he's in, yeah. yeah, no, that that's mine. I there's a lot of stuff that really makes me laugh in this movie, but that's the one that Murray has I, a lot of physicality going on here too. Oh yeah. What about you, Peterson? God, there's so many moments I love about this movie that really, really, really crack me up. Uh, I think the moment that really gets me though is when Max is walking out of the elevator. And it's slow mo, mm-hmm. and he just takes the gum out of his mouth, <laughs> sticks it on the wall, and it's this tiny little moment that would be so throwaway in any other movie. But what's Wes Anderson do? He does the slow mo. He makes it this big, like heroic moment. But he's got the beekeeper thing in one hand, and then he stabs it on the wall in the other, and it shows you everything you need to about the character. And the mental state that he's in at the moment. Mental state that he's in, but also that Herman Bloom's in. Mm-hmm. So I love that moment. Uh, there's like 
there's three or four others that could really, really go for it. You know, I love the who moment where the brakes are cut and he almost hits Kumar Polani as the groundskeeper. Yeah. I love, I love the, um, love the moment where he reaches when Donnie and Ronnie are yelling. Come on, dad, pull your head out of your ass. <laughs> and, and, and he just reaches back like, but I love though he doesn't do it immediately. It's like two or three seconds. Mm-hmm. And he like reaches his arm back and he like really loses his mind. And Bill Murray's so good. Like, but well, there's, there's also a great moment of physical comedy there whenever they get in and they turn the air conditioner up high and then it just cuts to a shot of Bill Murray's hair blowing straight up and, and he his stops face, it. his face of just like, Oh my God. I mean, what's, what's the, the line? Never in my wildest imagination did I dream I would uh, have children like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like it's, like that. That is just on his face at that moment. Well, and it's, then the, it's perfect. I love the moment, and it's it is kind of a weird moment because it's before cell phones are really like a thing thing. And he's walking, and he's on the phone, and the kids are playing basketball, and he <laughs> just just, just slams. slams I guarantee, I guarantee you, that's just Bill Murray being Bill Murray. Yeah, he's just like, walking through the scene, right? Yeah, yeah. And he's just like, oh, this kid, like. <laughs> Screw this kid! I'm gonna slam this ball so hard. Um, and we, because we didn't touch on Bill Murray a lot. Like he's, he really is wonderful. So is Jason Schwartzman, and so is Olivia Williams. Like it's a three hander. That's like these are three great performances. Mm-hmm. Oh, are they? <laughs> I love that. I don't care how like broad that joke is. That makes me laugh well, every no, time. I watch no, the this funniest movie. part isn't the "Oh, are we?" It's the Bill Murray <laughs> sort of laughing yeah. at it <laughs> and breaking down at it, and everyone's like, "Are you really laughing at this?" Are you, yeah, you can't do that. Right are now. you that childish? That you're laughing at this. Come on. Um, and he's oh god, I, I that whole that whole. Uh, dinner scene and he's she says well you're the one who ordered me whiskey and soda and he's like oh, well what are you gonna do <laughs> uh luke wilson wrote that joke the or they joke oh really yeah god this movie's funny uh, okay chris what about yours what about yours unless we stole it already no i i went a totally different direction in something that i you know dr guggenheim made me laugh quite a few times this time around and <laughs> Um, you know, he doesn't have, he doesn't have a lot of scenes, but Brian Cox is just, he is nailing it every time he's on screen. And, um, but the, the moment that I honestly don't know if I've ever really giggled at before, but it got me this time laughed out loud sitting, you know, in a room alone by myself when, uh, Max goes to, uh, to talk to him and max says what is that supposed to mean and Dr. Gunan, yeah just starts mocking him <laughs> just openly mocking him what's that supposed to mean and just the like because he's been so provincial up until this moment and it's finally mm-hmm. like max isn't his problem anymore and so he doesn't have to be cordial with him mm-hmm. and he's just gonna act the way that he he wants to what like, is that when he's in the hospital no when he's in no, the hospital no. what do you want <laughs> his wife's like, oh, he he probably doesn't know who you are. It's Fisher, and then it's a like hard cut 
also a great moment. offer a postgraduate year. It's after that. It's when um, it's when he's trying to get Miss Cross fired. Yeah, he's bringing the, the pictures in. Yeah, so oh, it's yeah. after it's after okay. he's already been expelled. So that's why like his guard is down. Where it's like I don't have to I don't have to treat you like a student who who is here anymore because you're not here. Those interactions between uh, Schwartzman and Cox are so funny because there's that moment where Schwartzman says, "Well, couldn't you just let me." slide by I can do like a postgraduate year sake. and he says we don't offer a postgraduate year and Schwarzman says but I love he goes well not yet we don't offer it yet yeah, also the the little slide by <laughs> that's a that's a direct reference to Godfather that's uh that's the type of you know they're they're they are doing but they're they're completely reframing it in a way that's like they're using it for a joke they're using it for um, no, their, their interactions are great. And I love, I love the way that Guggenheim is slowly revealed to be sick. Like initially it's just like, oh, he's sort of, he's sitting, you know, with a blanket over his lap and he's, well, he seems like any other school dean, principal, whatever. Yeah. Of this and then thing. suddenly the next time you see medication on a table and then all of a sudden he's had a stroke and, and there's just this like slow, you know, he's he doesn't have as many scenes, so we don't get developing him as much. But they're doing the same thing with with him as a smaller character, where it's just slowly giving us more and more information to kind of develop him and give us a depth that you just really wouldn't get from um, from a, a you know ancillary character in another film. Well, I think you're trying to say at the end of the day. Good film. We should we should probably get around to uh, ranking this, putting this on the shelves of the Anderson anthology. And just as a quick reminder, we've got we've got three tiers. We've got Anderson A list. These are the best cream of the crop films for Wes Anderson or PT Anderson. Um, Jake's got a lot up here for PTA. We're gonna see if he can he can fill up his <laughs> other his other two shelves. The next one down is Deep Dive. These are the films where, you know, we're not going to recommend these to everyone, but if you're an aficionado, you should definitely check them out. Um, they're probably worth your time, even, you know, in spite of some nicks and scruffs and bumps here and there. And then at the very bottom, we've got Wes's Weakest Whimsies, which Peterson already has something on his shelf there. Um, these are, these are films that just don't quite cut the mustard in comparison to, uh, the rest of the director's filmography. Hopefully it's lonely down there. Hopefully there's not much other than, I guess, Bottle Rocket and Darjeeling Limited, but we'll see. We'll see. I mean, look, hold on, hold on. Jake hadn't gotten to see Magnolia, Inherent Vice. <laughs> there, there's some, there's some very capable films coming up forward. <laughs> Capable, capable for uh, purely Paul's, purely Papa. for Paul's Papa. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll 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 burn those bridges when we get there. Uh, Peterson, where are you? Uh, where are you going to land this time? So I'm very easily in an Anderson A list. I absolutely adore this film. It's a movie that I really, really love. And the first, I guess, two thirds of it, I always wonder. I like this movie. And I think it's a really beautiful film in a lot of ways. It doesn't quite like get to that emotional arc for me. And then the last third brings the entire thing full circle for me. And mm -hmm. by the end of it, I am, I'm kind of a puddle. Like I think this movie, 
emotionally just hits me in a space that is really profound, really beautiful. And I absolutely adore this movie. And I think, yes, the first two thirds are like very good, but without the last third, it doesn't fully get to that moment where it congeals. And I think Anderson knows that. And I think that's why he does it the way he does. I think I love this movie. I, I really do. It's, you know, one of my favorite Anderson films. I absolutely love this thing. What about you, Jake? Yeah, very clear Anderson A-list. And, and I, I think it. if there was some way to say it's better than that, like I think its impact is huge. I think it's it's an A-list for the 90s. I think it is a, uh, a precursor to the independent cinema that would come, uh, I don't know, when it reached you know, 15 years or whatever you want to say after that, 10, 15 years after that. Um, just the the voice that comes through in this, the level of talent that he shows just, we didn't even talk about the soundtrack or anything like that very much, but just the entire total package of the film, there's no way it's not on the A list. And even though there may be Anderson films that I, I like more, there's very few that I, I don't, I don't know if I can even say that, but, but I I recommend this at, at the highest level and, and it's a must see whether you're a Wes Anderson fan or not. Yeah, man, I we're we're all obviously simpatico here. I for me, I think this is sort of um, this this is probably an odd comparison, but for me, it's so, almost his the general of his catalog for me, where um, he's not quite as funny as he is in a lot of places, which could potentially be a problem. But much like with uh, Buster Keaton making the general, he's just done such a damn good job here that um, it doesn't really matter. And where the funnies come through, they're they're still pretty great. Uh, I think we see so much of just him setting up, announcing, "Here I am. This is this is who I am as an artist." And you know, it helps that now we're finally in the big Panavision scope here versus a uh, a bit of a smaller scope with uh with bottle rocket but i mean from the opening notes of mark mothers from mark mothers bar and the opening you know shot we kind of get the idea of uh of who he is what he is like i don't think there's a frame in here that you wouldn't be able to identify as andersonian if you know it was just pulled you know, you, he's he's already reached that level where it's like, oh, yeah, clearly this is this is Wes Anderson's work. And I think that's pretty remarkable for only a second, uh, only a second feature. So got to go a list. Well, Chris, can I ask a quick question? So you said it's not as kind of inherently funny as, as other films. Would you compare this most to Grand Budapest Hotel? Which I also think is funny, but not as funny. No, see, I think Grand Budapest might be his funniest um, in a, like, Grand Budapest has a lot of jokes. Don't you touch my lobby boy. There's every time Ray Fiennes uses the F word, it's just beautiful. I don't know how he does it. He makes it. um, I would actually compare it to his most recent Isle of Dogs. I think Isle of Dogs is light on the jokes. They're still there, but more about um this lost soul trying to figure out um who he is and ultimately uh finding redemption in a way that isn't a formulaic sort of conclusion um 
So that's kind of where I would I would play. And you know, not that there's a problem with it not being exceptionally funny. It's just when I think of Wes Anderson, one of the first things I think of is the way that he sets up and uses jokes and humor. And and a lot of times I think he uses it, you know, I think he uses it in Royal Tenenbaums to kind of disarm some of the darkness. Um, so the fact that he's dealing in some fairly dark matters here, but it's not, it's not a extremely funny ha ha comedy. Um, I find it interesting in retrospect, looking at all of his work. So Chris, could you recommend a beer for anyone who wants one? I, I don't want one. I can Jake. Uh, I'm going to recommend not just a beer, but actually a series uh, of beers that Coop Ale Works in Oklahoma City have been releasing for at least a few years now. They call it their Cask It series barrel-aged DNR. So DNR is a strong Belgian beer that Coop makes that, I'll be perfectly frank, I don't really like. There are people who it is their thing. It's not my thing. It um, It's very high in ABV, which you would think would be my thing, but it just doesn't uh, there's not enough other stuff going on. It tastes like malt liquor to me. Um, but I've had a few of these casket series ales and they're really good. Uh, what they're, what they're doing is they're taking their DNR and they age it in various casks for 16 months and then, um, and then bottle them and distribute them. So they're kind of these limited run things that they do each year. Uh, they do a few different ones. My favorite happens to be the rye in the casket series. So I would, if you can find that one, I would definitely recommend it. It's sweet and boozy like you would expect. It's got that rye bite to it, but also with, uh, you know, the, the Belgian base, it has some sort of dark fruit notes to it as well. Some figs, some raisins, stuff like that. Um, and I think it really improves upon the original DNR and makes it something that's actually worth, uh, worth consuming. And I guess I should say the, my whole, if it hadn't become apparent, Yet, my whole connection here is there's a lot of death going on in on under the surface of everything in uh in Rushmore. So I figured a casket beer makes sense here. And for those those curious, the rye is coming in at twelve point five percent ABV. Uh, so next time you put in Rushmore, see if you can pick up one of these uh, Coop Aleworks beers and uh, sip it alongside. I think you'll enjoy it. All right. Yeah, no, still not drinking it. Mm, I tried. Well, all right. Rushmore is currently streaming on Hulu or, of course, available on a beautiful Criterion Collection Blu-ray disc. If you've seen it, tell us your thoughts at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Or if email is your thing, we'd still love to hear from you. Ring the red phone and leave us a voicemail at 484-424-6362. That's 484-4-CINEMA. Stick around, folks. We'll be right back with Really Rad Recommendations, coming up next. I cut down our tree with my hands all today. It was then or the next storm would sweep it away as I stood on the rooftop. Tree with a hand so today. 
It's really rad recommendation time once again, which means we're close to the end, but not quite yet. Jake, what do you have to recommend for us this time? Well, it was going to be Harold and Maud, uh, but since we talked about that earlier, I wanted to come up with something else that uh, paired well with this. Was a uh, you know this movie that I picked is something that I also watched recently uh, and shamefully for the first time. It's also uh, kind of a coming of age story uh, or. Definitely a coming-of-age story, I would say. Rushmore is kind of a coming-of-age story in a way. But uh, it's uh, Richard Linklater's Boyhood. Now, shame me for having not seen it. Shame. A lot of shame. Uh, lot, lot, uh, lot of shame. shame. Yeah, I, I don't I don't know. I, I think when it came out, maybe somebody had told me, like, ah, it's okay. It might be a little... Whoever told me that, I'm upset with you because I'm really mad that I've gone this long without seeing it. I was I was really blown away. This It, it was excellent and it makes me want to go and revisit or or visit for the first time a lot of link later stuff because i haven't seen very much we were talking off mic about this but i haven't seen enough of link later and i i love boyhood i love everybody wants some and and i i have to get more because his voice and his way of uh telling a story is just completely unique to him so boyhood comes out great reviews and you choose not to see a Richard McClatter film? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I did. Correct. Next question. It took a lot of arm twisting him to see everybody wants some, and he loves baseball. Yeah, you're right. So, sometimes I make bad choices about my time, guys. It happens. You should watch Days and Confused. You guys should be jealous that I got to watch Boyhood for the first time. Yeah, I did five years ago in a theater. Yeah, go, yeah well, I'll go yeah, watch wonderful. Days and Confused for the first time and enjoy that. How about that? All right. If you haven't seen Boyhood for some weird reason like me, because you heard one negative review from somebody five years ago, screw that. Go and watch Boyhood. It's on Netflix. It's easy to just put on and watch. And uh, one of the quickest two and a half hour movies I've ever watched. It absolutely flew by. All right, Peterson, what do you have to recommend? First of all, second, second Jay can say Boyhood's an absolute masterpiece. Go see it. Please, please do. Uh, but my recommendation actually will also feature Ethan Hawke. Um, for those of you who really can't get enough Hawke, this is Juliet Naked. So it's based on a 2008 or 2009 novel, which I can't remember. I read the novel like the day it came out. It was a very easy read. I like Nick Hornby a lot. He's an author that I think can really easily give you a romantic comedy with some really good characters. 
And for those of you who don't know, Juliet Naked is about Ethan Hawke plays Tucker Crow, who is a basically a one album wonder from the 1990s in the vein of a Nirvana or a, uh, you know, someone of that ilk. And he disappears, just disappears off the map. And Rose Byrne's boyfriend in the movie, she lives in some seaside English hamlet, which looks unbelievably idyllic. And with that, he, her boyfriend is obsessed. Like he is a obsessive fan of Tucker Crow and she, he is sent a CD of his famous album, Juliet, but it's called Juliet Naked is a stripped down demo version of the album. There's no pomp to it. There's no circumstance. It's all just first recordings. And she listens to it first and says, this thing is terrible. It's unlistenable. And because of that, it causes a strife between her and her boyfriend she goes on to have an email relationship with Tucker Crow that then goes on to be a potentially a in-person relationship that like Nick Hornby is very good at centers on their vulnerabilities as people and their kind of needing to grow up but also needing to grow into themselves and it's got a great soundtrack of the kinks pop up uh John Lennon I think pops up and even the songs that Tucker Crow has are all really good. I think Rose Burns very good. Chris O'Dowd, who plays her boyfriend, is very good. And Ethan Hawke is extraordinary. Like he's just this is the kind of thing he was born to play. A washed up '90s musician is like the Ethan Hawke current day. Like this is what he was born to do. Um, and I and I love Ethan Hawke. He's one of my favorite actors. I absolutely love the guy. So this is a movie I highly recommend. It's called Juliet Naked. It's on Amazon Prime right now. Go check it out. Uh, it's a quick little 90 minutes. It'll be a lot easier than a Yorgos Lanthimos movie or even sitting through, you know, a Link Ladder three-hour movie about uh, aging. So go check it out. I take offense to the Lanthimos comment. I love Lanthimos, I though. <laughs> I love Lanthimos. Uh, that was more for Jake. I know he's looking for things to get Chelsea back in his good graces. Uh, but, but Chris, what are you, uh, what are you going to these days? Well, kind of following my recommendation from last time where, you know, I took a Truffaut film that I would generally pair with a Wes Anderson film, um, which actually would uh, day for night would pair well with this because there is a day for night direct rip here uh, uh, when he first gets to Grover Cleveland. But uh, I decided to go with a Altman film, uh, Robert Altman being a director who I would generally pair with Paul Thomas Anderson, particularly his first few films. Uh, but instead, I'm pairing his 1970 film Brewster McCloud with Rushmore, as I think it would be a, a nice little double. Um, this stars Bud Court from the aforementioned Harold and Maude. He also plays the Bond stooge later in Life Aquatic. Um, and Sandy Kellerman is in, is in this as well. And Shelley Duvall, who was working quite a bit with Altman at the time. Uh, it is about this very bizarre little, uh, little sex symbol man played by, uh, Bud Court. He lives in like the Houston Astrodome and like a fallout shelter, um, he's obsessed with health food and birds 
and birds might be killing people at his behest, and he may or may not be transforming into a bird. Who knows? I'm sorry. What? <laughs> it's yeah, no, and the thing is this this movie has been fairly difficult to see. It played at Alamo Draft House here like a few months ago, and like I bought my ticket like a month in advance and then realized that I put it in my calendar wrong and it played the night before. Uh, oh no. I thought it was. So then like that that evening, like I just went and bought it on iTunes because it's only available to to watch on iTunes and Microsoft of all places. I don't know what the deal is with distribution. It's it's a little hard to come by, but it's worth it. It is it is a bizarro little little film. I mean, I keep waiting for Criterion to pick it up. It seems like a, a dream for for them to bring something like this back into um, back into the fold of of mainstream uh, cinema. But it's maybe a little bit closer to a uh Harold and Maude or that sort of thing than what you think of when you think of most Altman stuff. It's it's a little bit looser and a little bit goofier. The second photo on IMDb, if I can just interrupt for a second, is Bud Court in looking essentially like where's Waldo. Yeah. Like I maybe flying through looked like maybe an atrium yes. or some kind like I, I don't this is the strangest IDB photo I've ever seen. I don't know how to really describe this movie because it's like what I told you is all you really need to know. And that's probably even too much information. It's bizarre. Just check it out. Shelly Duvall eating cotton candy. Here we go. But they, the way that he photographs court in this, in this movie, which I mean, he's a fairly small dude. He's, he's fairly short, but he's like, I'd say a quarter of the movie running around in a speedo. And he's just photographed to be this Adonis, which he really isn't. But the way that he pulls it off, Altman pulls it off in some weird way where it's like, no, I can understand why Shelley Duvall has like pure animal attraction to him. Uh, it's check it out. It's, it's fun. It was also, it was also shot entirely in, uh, Houston, Texas, where Rushmore was shot. Um, although unlike Rushmore where you can't really tell much, uh, the location except for a few key, uh, key shots, like from Herman Bloom's, uh, hotel room, this, you really do kind of get a feel of, of the area in the seventies, which is also nice because there's, it looks a lot different. One quick question. So there's a picture of Rene uh, Abourjois. I, I, I don't know him quite as much. Uh, and he is dressed in a cardigan. With oh, the these. dude, the dude dressed as a as a bird man. Is is that the driving force behind Tim Burton costuming? <laughs> Batman Returns is the Penguin. Penguin could be because I mean I'm it's looking not. directly at this and it looks like eerily like Danny DeVito. Yeah, no, there are there are definitely some similarities. And that costuming rules in Batman Returns. I couldn't tell you. Like I would have to do more research, but no, like fine if you if you have a chance to watch this movie, take it. It is bizarre and a lot of fun and. Uh, it's, it's fun to see young Shelley Duvall and Bud Court running around, um, stealing cars and stuff and birds murdering people at the behest of, uh, young Adonis. So, uh, find it on iTunes, find it on Microsoft Zune. Uh, 
<laughs> or uh, next time it plays at Alamo Drafthouse. And that's a wrap for another episode of War Starts at Midnight. Join us next time for a brand new episode of The Magnificent Andersons, our ongoing exploration of the works of two American auteurs, Paul Thomas Anderson and Wes Anderson. Next time, we're discussing PTA's ambitious three-hour magnum opus, Magnolia. Find us online at warstartsmidnight.com for show notes and more. And if you've got something to say, you can email the show at hello at warstartsmidnight.com or better yet, give us a call and leave a voicemail at 484-424-6362. Or you can just say hello on Twitter. You can find me at WSAMPod. I'm at JakerG23. And I'm Peterson W. Hill. If you enjoy War Starts at Midnight, please remember to subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to fine audio programming. It'll help us grow the Midnight Warrior Clan, and it'll make you feel awesome. The War Starts at Midnight theme song was produced by Justin Streck. And shout out to Smokey in the Mirror for the featured music on this week's show. Find out more at SmokeyInTheMirror.com. Thanks for listening, folks. I saved Latin. What did you ever do? My safety's Harvard. <laughs>